the realities here. Turn loose of the shadows and embrace the true and living Christ. He's brought peace with God and peace with each other. That's what Paul means when he says Christ has become our peace. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Tom is continuing his current series titled, He Himself is Our Peace. He has part five for you on today's broadcast. Well, if you're in Christ Jesus, He Himself is your peace, according to Scripture. But so far in the series, you've learned about the alienation and hostility between God and man as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. Well, today you'll discover the two reasons you've now been reunited with God. If you're in Christ, there is now a restored union between you and God and between you and other believers. And yet, while there exists a permanent, indissoluble peace between you and your fellow believer, there may be issues on which you still disagree, issues not specifically mentioned in Scripture. Open your Bible now as we join our teacher with today's message on The Word Unleashed. We live in a world that is characterized by strife and hostility. Whether you're talking about at the individual level, the relationships between people, or whether you're talking about the relationships between countries, our world is characterized by strife and hostility. This last month, I read an example, a tragic example really, from the life of the great poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning. You may not be aware of her situation. A childhood accident caused her to be a semi-invalid for a large portion of her life before she married Robert Browning in 1846. In her youth, Elizabeth's father was an absolute tyrant. He decided that he wouldn't allow any of his children to marry. And so, when she and Robert Browning were married, their wedding was held in secret because of her father's disapproval. After the wedding, the Brownings sailed to Italy where they lived for the rest of their lives together. Even though her parents disowned her, however, Elizabeth still sought them out. She still tried to reach them. She never gave up on the relationship, and they tell us that almost weekly she wrote letters to them. Not once did they reply. After about a 10-year period, she received a large box in the mail, and inside that box, Elizabeth found every one of her letters. Not one of them had ever been opened. Today, those letters are among the most beautiful in classical English literature, along, of course, with the letters that were exchanged between her and her husband, Robert. If her parents had only read a few of those letters, the relationship between them might have been reconciled. It might have been restored and reestablished. But sadly, because of the hostility, the animosity, the strife that is part of a fallen world, that relationship never was. It's even sadder, I think, that that kind of animosity can even occur among those who call themselves Christians. I've shared examples with you from the past. Uh, Probably my two favorite examples from my own personal experience, I remember watching two adult 
professing Christian men, one of them the chairman of the deacon board, almost come to blows at a Wednesday evening business meeting in the church in which I grew up over the placement of the piano in the sanctuary. And my father-in-law knew of a church where the members argued so much about the color of the roof shingles that they ended up, the only way they could resolve it was to put one color of shingle on one side of the roof and the other color on the other side. But that's not the worst of it. Each group then sat under the side of the roof that was the color of their shingles. There are many other examples that aren't nearly so humorous. Why is there conflict and hostility in our world? If I were to ask you that question, why is there hostility and conflict between individuals as well as between countries? Why is that so pandemic in human society? What would you say? Well, obviously, the short answer is sin. But if you were to examine it a little more closely, you would find that what lies behind strife and arguing and hostility at every level is always the same sin. It is ultimately the sin of pride. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. He said, man, each man, sets himself up as a god. He thinks he is an autonomous being, and he has the right to rule. He is constantly revolving around himself. He is the center. But unfortunately, all men are doing the same thing, and that's where the trouble comes in. If I alone existed, there would be no trouble. Have you noticed that you never get into fights with other people if you're alone? It's because your pride is not in any way affected because you can rule. But Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, but every other I is exactly the same as I am. The result is that the world is peopled by a number of gods all asserting themselves and all demanding their rights and claiming the same things. It is inevitable, he says, that there should therefore be clashes. When your pride and my pride clash, there is strife and there is hostility. Tragically, because of human pride, hostility between people is and always will be part of life in a fallen world. Maybe even right now, as you sit in this room this morning, you find yourself in a settled state of hostility with a spouse or with a family member, with a lifelong friend, with a fellow church member, with a neighbor, with a coworker. Listen, that kind of hostility must not live in the hearts of the people who know Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 14 to 18, the second section that we find ourselves in the middle of. Verse 14, for he himself, that is Christ himself, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father." This little section 
is permeated by the concept of reconciliation, of peace with God and peace with each other. We have been united. There is a union between us and God and between us and other believers. Paul here offers for us two basic reasons, two basic causes. The first is the ministry of Christ in verses 14 to 16, and the second reason is the message of Christ in verses 17 and 18. Look at the first cause or the first reason, the ministry of Christ. Verses 14 through 16 focus on what Christ has done. It's summarized at the beginning of verse 14, for he himself is our peace. What does that mean? Well, Paul explains it for us in three parallel Greek participles. Those Greek participles are translated in our English text as made in verse 14, broke down at the end of verse 14, and abolishing at the beginning of verse 15. Those are all three parallel expressions. These three participles explain what it means that Christ has become our peace, that He has reconciled us to God and to each other. We looked last week at the first participle. He made both groups into one, verse 14. This is the peace Christ made. He made both groups, that is, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, into one group. The second participle is he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. This is how Christ made the two groups into one. He broke down the barrier that separated them. The third participle comes at the beginning of verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances. Now that's a little hard for us to digest, but it's a very important expression to understand. Here he's telling us the way Jesus brought us peace with others, by abolishing. Now the Greek word that's translated abolishing here means literally to make ineffective, to nullify, to abolish or to set aside. What did Jesus make ineffective? What did he set aside or abolish? Notice the object of this verb is the enmity. He abolished the enmity. The hostility is another way to define that word. He abolished the hostility, specifically the hostility that was created by the law of the commandments contained in decrees. What is the law of the commandments contained in decrees? It's clear from the similar passages, as we'll see in a moment, that Paul here means the Mosaic law. Paul is talking about the law of God given at Sinai to the people of Israel. In a very real sense, listen carefully to this, in a very real sense, the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile was not that marble wall at the temple. The real dividing wall was the Mosaic law. That's what separated Jews and Gentiles. You say, well, how did the Mosaic law do that? How did the Mosaic law create hostility? How did it divide? Well, it did so in a couple of ways. First of all, it separated the Jews from all the other peoples on earth. 
The Mosaic law was in some ways intended to do that. It was intended to make them distinct, to make them different, to make a distinction between the Jewish people and their neighbors. The law was intended to make the difference clear so that they could then be a voice for God, so that they could declare God to the nations. But instead of those ceremonial laws making them distinct, the Jews misunderstood them, and soon, instead of seeing them as something that made them distinct, that allowed them to declare the true God to the nations, they became a badge of honor. They became a source of isolation. The law became a fence around Israel. There were all of those special feasts. There were forbidden foods. There were designated fasts. There were offerings and sacrifices that had to be offered constantly. There was circumcision. And on and on the list goes. And all of those ceremonial requirements of the Mosaic Law, from what they ate to how they worshipped, created enmity or hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. Because the Jews used them to isolate themselves and to look down on the Gentiles, the Gentiles since that, experienced that, looked at the strangeness of what the Jews did, and it became a source of isolation, a source of hostility. But Paul here says, Jesus rendered null and void all of those ceremonial decrees. Christ made Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians one, and he did it by breaking down the wall that divided them, and that wall was the ceremonial part of the Mosaic law. Jesus rendered that ineffective. He nullified it. You say, well, what about the hostility the law created between us and God? How did the Mosaic law create hostility there? I understand how it could have created hostility between the Jews and their neighbors, but how did the Mosaic Law create hostility between us and God? While nowhere in the Bible does the Bible divide the Mosaic Laws, the laws given at Sinai, into categories of moral and ceremonial and civil, nevertheless, in the New Testament, those parts of the Mosaic Law are treated differently, and I'll show you that in just a moment. And so it is legitimate to say that there were aspects of that law given to Moses at Sinai that, were, that was civil, that is, pertained to the rule of the government of the country. Paul in Romans 13 says that civil aspect of the law has now been handed over to secular governments. He was writing to the Romans, telling them to submit to the governments around them, and to submit even to the to the carrying out of penalties by that government. There was a ceremonial aspect of the law. Jesus has nullified that. There was also, in the law of Moses, what is called the moral law of God. That is, those timeless moral requirements of God that do not change because they are reflections of His eternal character. They're outlined in the Ten Commandments. And in fact, all of the Ten Commandments except one are reiterated as binding in the New Testament. You see, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, Matthew 5. He came to fulfill it. He came to fill it out. He came to keep it. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, as a believer, that he delights in the law of God in the inner man. So when we come to the moral law contained in the law of Moses, outlined by the Ten Commandments, 
those moral requirements created real hostility between us and God because we didn't keep them. God said, you shall not bear false witness, and we bear false witness. God said, you shall not steal, and we still steal. God says, you shall have no other gods before me, and our hearts, as John Calvin says, are idle factories. All we can do is produce other gods and worship them. And so over and over again, we have broken it, and that has created hostility between us and God. Jesus came not to to completely set aside the moral law, there's still God's expectations of us. As I said, every one of them is reiterated in the New Testament with the exception of the law of the Sabbath, and we're told instead to worship God on Sunday. But Jesus came to change our relationship to the moral law because God's moral law condemned us, but Jesus removed the condemnation that our violation of God's moral law produced. So, here's what Paul means in verse 15. He means that Jesus abolished the hostility, the ceremonial law created between Jews and Gentiles, and Jesus also abolished the hostility, the moral law created between us and God. John Stott puts it this way, Jesus abolished both the regulations of the ceremonial law and the condemnation, the guilty verdict, of the moral law. Now, let me see if I can make it a little clearer for you. Turn to Colossians chapter 2, because here Paul uses both of these aspects of the law as he talks about the work of Christ. Colossians chapter 2, and notice verse 13. You'll notice this, by the way, Colossians was written around the same time as the letter to the church in Ephesus. It's parallel in many ways, and you'll see similar expressions here. As we go through Ephesians, I'll often refer to Colossians because there's so many similarities. Notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. You'll notice immediately the similarities with Ephesians 2. Then he says, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt. Stop there. In the ancient world, if you became indebted to someone, you wrote up what was essentially a formalized IOU. In your own handwriting, you wrote what you owed, and you signed that you owed it. You gave it to the person to whom you owed it. It was a way they could demand that payment from you. So there was this certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Here he's talking about the moral law of God. You and I violated God's moral requirements, and he has every right then to call our debt, and we don't have the resources to pay it. But Jesus canceled out the certificate of our debt. The picture is of wiping ink off of a page. It was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, and he did so by having it nailed to the cross. By the way, there's a beautiful word picture there. In the ancient world, when someone was crucified, what they were guilty of was placed on the cross. You remember on our Lord's, in our Lord's crucifixion, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. But usually it was what they were accused of, and in his case, of course, that is what he was accused of, being a king in opposition to Caesar, in opposition to the God of Israel. And so... In Jesus' case, 
He's pictured here as having our certificate of debt, that handwriting of ours that says, we owe God obedience and we failed to keep it. That was nailed to his cross. That was, he was accused of that, and he died for your failure to keep the law of God. That's the moral aspect of the law. But notice in the same context, Paul goes on to deal with the ceremonial aspect. Verse 16, therefore, no one is to act as your judge. Because of what Christ did, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He says, listen, those ceremonial things that were a part of the Mosaic law, they're done away with. Don't let anybody judge you in those things. You don't have to do those things anymore. Here's why. Literally, the Greek text says this, things which are a shadow of what is to come but the body belongs to Christ. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you go back to the Old Testament, and you look at all those ceremonial laws, those were like the shadow Christ cast across the Old Testament. It's like Christ's shadow. But when his body shows up, you don't want his shadow anymore. The reality's here. Turn loose of the shadows and embrace the true and living Christ. So Christ then canceled our debt to God for violating the moral law, and he canceled our responsibility to God regarding the ceremonial aspects of the law. So the best way to think about what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2 verse 15 is this. The Mosaic covenant as a law covenant was rendered null and void. And now both Jew and Gentile Christians live under the new covenant. He's brought peace with God and peace with each other. That's what Paul means when he says Christ has become our peace. Now, why did Christ do this? Why did he become our peace? Paul explains it to us back in Ephesians 2. You'll notice in the middle of verse 15, the little words, so that. Those words speak of divine purpose. Here's why Christ became our peace. And he gives us two reasons. First of all, to make peace between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Verse 15, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Folks, here is the new math of the church. One plus one equals one. Jewish Christians plus Gentile Christians equals one new entity. And what is that entity? The church. Verses 19 to 22 are going to touch on that. But when we get to chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, Paul is going to explain this in great detail. But you need to understand this expression. Verse 15, one new man. He's talking about the church. And that statement is crucial to understanding the nature of the church. One new man. First of all, it means it's been created by God. The word made in verse 15 is a a very interesting Greek word. It's only used in the New Testament of God creating the world or of God recreating a soul. It's an act of God where something is made out of nothing. It's a creation of God, the church is. Verse 15 tells us that. He made one new man. That also means that Old Testament Israel, listen carefully, was not the church. It's a new 
man. It's a new entity. It means that Jews and the New Testament church are not going to be forever distinct, as some classic dispensationalists would have us believe. Because the two now merge into one entity. As Jewish Christians, or as Jews, or I should say, become Christians in today's world, they become part of the church along with Gentiles. And this new entity centers on the person of Jesus Christ himself. Notice it says, in himself. So, Christ then abolished our condemnation because of the moral law. He abolished the ceremonial law so that in the church he could create a new entity. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his current series titled, He Himself is Our Peace. Tom will bring you part six next time, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And don't forget to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.